What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 74 of The Next Bite. And if I may, this one is a banger. Article 1, we talk all about taking robotic dogs here on Earth and sending them to the moon. And then we also go into talk about warehouse navigating robotics and how this could unlock a future of automating all sorts of things in the world around us. So I think you'll find it interesting. Let's jump into episode 74. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is The Next Bite Podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. Alrighty, folks, like we're saying, this is all about robotics, and our first topic is all about robotic dogs and how they're going to be taking us to the moon. But before we jump into any of that, I want to stop and pause and take a second to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Mauser Electronics. Um, as you may know, if you listen to the podcast, they're one of the world's largest electronic suppliers. They're also Farboden, my favorite electronic supplier. Um, and as a result of their relationships with all these different suppliers um, and manufacturers in the electronic space, they also know a ton about technology. And I think we it's no more fitting i couldn't find a more fitting article than the one that we included today in our show notes from them basically we're talking all about robotic dogs they made a an article about reverse engineering canine uh the robotic dog from doctor who so basically they're saying this dog in doctor who canine was theoretically born in the year 5000 but they're saying using technology that we have today it's possible to make a robotic dog and they kind of break down the different components and the different types of technologies you'd be able to use to make a robotic dog. And that's a good fundamental understanding. If you read that article before we jump into our first article today, talking about bringing robotic dogs to the moon. So it's kind of like, it's like the crash course or robotic dogs for dummies. You can read that one first. It's in the show notes, pause here, go read that. And then hop back in when we go to article one for robotic dogs to the moon. You know, we, you can probably notice a trend here with these uh, Mauser articles that we include. They take topics that are relevant to the to today's world, like some some really interesting stuff going on, cutting edge tech, and they frame it in such an interesting manner. Like the other one we had was how to get super to get superpowers. You don't need to be born a superhero. Just do X, Y, and Z. It's like a tutorial to becoming Iron Man. And now you have how to build your own robotic dog. And dude, I, I just love presenting information in that matter. I, I think. These articles are so sick. Yeah, I'm about it. And that's why I wanted to include it and share it with everyone. And then Great also, time. it's a perfect bridge to bring, bridge us into our first article, which is coming out of ETH Zurich. They're partnering with the European Space Agency. And what they're trying to do is bring robotic dogs, robotic dog technology to the moon. Okay. Um, a little bit a zoom out moment for us, though. Um, the South Pole of the moon is very, very rich in resources that might be valuable to us if we try to do lunar operations or make a lunar colony. What kind of resources are we talking about? It's here? got a lot of rare earth metals. It's got ice, which means that we can melt that down and use it as a water source for people on nice. the moon, um, as opposed to having to ship a bunch of water down with them. Um, in addition, they also have a lot of oxygen that's in the oxide form of a lot of the rocks and minerals there. So basically, if we go there, we can extract rare earth metals, we can extract water, we can extract oxygen. These are things that would be very, very valuable to us if we were to try and create a lunar colony or do extended, um, you know, human inhabitation on the moon for, for scientific missions. So knowing that all that's there, 
Sounds really cut and dry easy, right? We should just go send a bunch of lunar rovers over there, collect those resources, understand, scope out um, how rich the South Pole of the moon is, and then we can go send a bunch of colonies there, right? Yeah, no biggie. Super easy. It's actually not easy at all. So the South Pole of the moon is one of the most challenging part parts of the entire lunar surface to access. Um, there are super deep craters on the way there um, and thick dusk and high temperature fluctuations. And th that's kind of common across all the moon, but specifically because of the deep craters and the low angle of the light that it gets at the South Pole of the moon, it's really challenging to send our existing technology there because it'll have trouble navigating in low light. Um, and in addition, you need something that navigates pretty efficiently um, because the rovers that we have on the moon today are powered by solar energy and basically right. if they're not efficient enough to navigate through that terrain they take a long time where they're wasting a lot of energy they're going to run out of power and they're not going to be able to recharge because the solar solar panels don't work as well in the high dust and the low light environment european space agency is basically putting out a call for help they're saying people around the earth if you've got advanced robotics technologies, we're looking to see if anyone can adapt terrestrial exploration technology. So technology that's already been adapt, already been built and designed for us to do exploration on Earth. Can anyone adapt this technology and make it easy for us to go take this to the moon? So keeping in mind that high temperature fluctuations, the thick dust, the low light, um, the tough terrain with the craters. Is there any technology that we have today? We can put a little spin on it and then go spend, send it up to the moon. And I think the reason why they're calling on people to use adaptations of terrestrial exploration tech is they want to be able to do it soon. So they want to be able to do it in the next two years. Um, and that being said, you probably can't do a ground up robotic development in that time, but you probably could uh, do like a spin on something that's already been well established. So just to recap, it would be great for us to explore the southern pole of the moon because of all the resources that it has. We can't really send the traditional rovers that we've been using because they're not suitable for that environment. ESA, the European Space Agency, has put out the bad signal. They put out a bounty. Hey, to all the roboticists in the world, show us what you got. Let's see if we can make this thing work in the next two years. So it's a pretty aggressive deadline. Is exactly. So, so they, I mean, and it's even more aggressive than that. They put out this call for help. Um, and then months later, we're holding competitions to try and choose a winner. Got so it. Wow. they're all about using the technology that's ready today. They think, you know, even if we go all the way back to that Mauser ad, we we first mentioned at the beginning of the article, the technology is there. It's mature. It's ready. So they're trying to say who's got an existing solution that we can put a little spin on it and send it to the moon. And ETH Zurich, a team from there, stepped out and said, yo, that's us. Um <laughs> They built a robot called the Geological Lunar In-Situ Mapper and Prospector for Surface Exploration, which is an awesome acronym. Um, it stands for GLIMPS. Um, Ooh, that's a good one. I'm going to, obviously, because of that mouthful of words, I'm going to keep using GLIMPS from here on out. Makes sense. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen any of the viral videos on YouTube or Instagram or TikTok of the Enimal. Um, it's a basically everyone, at least in that I know in the U S is really, really well acquainted with Boston dynamic spot. That's right. their, you know, dog imitating robot. That's based in out of the Boston area. Animal is very, very similar. It's a spinoff from ETH Zurich, a company called Anybotics, made a quadruped, uh, dog mimicking robot called Animal, Um, and it basically looks a lot like the Boston dynamic spot, but 
honestly, by looking at it a little bit more, watching some of their videos, I think it's even more impressive in some of the ways that it can navigate tough terrain and the way that they can modularly attach um, different types of instruments to it pretty easily. Um, and that's a spinoff from researchers at ETH Zurich. So the team from ETH Zurich is partnering with the spinoff Anybotics um, that used to be ETH Zurich students and professors. And they said, we're going to make glimpse. So they put a twist on this thing. They added a Raman spectrometer, which allows them to look at different types of rocks and characterize the minerals that are in there. They added a microscope so that they can look at things close up. They also added a camera with a zoom lens so that it can see things from far away. And then it also added lighting to it so that they can see things in a low light condition. So they basically took the any anybotics animal, like this thing that's been in a bunch of viral videos and stuff. You've probably seen it on Instagram. So they took this thing that's well established and then they put a spin on it and basically decked it out said they're going to attach all these instruments and tools that will make it useful for this thing to try and navigate on the moon gotcha yeah you, so all the tools that they've added totally makes sense but i gotta be honest with you the, the one part that i'm still pretty skeptical on is the power management because these robots if i'm not mistaken you know they're kind of intensive they use a lot of energy because um, they're driving four different motors for their legs and then they're processing a lot of data they're communicating with you know some sort of receiver to send data back. And now we're talking about sending them off in, in a very harsh environment where even if they have solar panels, there might not be enough sunlight reaching it to charge up whenever they need it. Did they ever mention if they're um, addressing that in any way differently or is it just keep going with what we got now and address that problem when we get there? I'm not sure if they've got a specific solution to address that, but what I will mention is like a quadruped robot like this that can climb up and down terrain um, even if it consumes more energy per time, um, it will definitely be able to navigate challenging terrain in a faster time um, than something with a bunch like you know four wheels for, to and 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 no legs like the Martian rovers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, even though it may not be as efficient um, to travel from point A to point B on flat ground, it'll definitely be more efficient to travel from point A to point B if you have to go up and down a mountain or through a crater. Okay, that makes sense. And and you mentioned like you know they they put out the bat signal, the competition's there. Um, they're choosing winners in a couple months. Has that already happened and did Glimpse already win or is Glimpse one of the uh, contenders here? So Glimpse was one of the first 13 competitors chosen to participate in the first round of the competition. And basically what they did is they chose this warehouse in the Netherlands, um, filled it with a bunch of uh, craters and mountains and simulated stuff to basically seem like the lunar surface. Um, then they put the robot in there and then took the team outside the warehouse, and they didn't have any visual um, way to see what was going on inside the warehouse. They were only able to use the instruments on their robots. Um, allowed each team two and a half hours for the robot to find its way through the unfamiliar lunar landscape, to find its way to a specific crater, where it then had to collect a bunch of rocks, analyze them, collect all the data, come back to home base, and then process the data and send it to the home base within one and a half hours after that. So super tight time frame, um, and to make things harder, and honestly, to make things more realistic, like mimicking the way you would have to deal with it if this robot was actually on the lunar surface. Um, in addition to not having a direct view of the simulated lunar landscape, um, they also had intentionally spotty connection with the robot, so it kept connecting and Ooh. disconnecting. And then they also had a big high latency, so a big delay between when they gave a command and when the robot was able to execute or when the robot collected a piece of data and when the people back on Earth were able to receive it. Wow. So based on that competition, they were one of only 
of that team team of 13 that were 13. selected based on their proposals they're one of only five teams that finished and was selected to go down to the next round of competition they got 75,000 euros to help out um then they have the opportunity in the next few months in a the next round of the competition the final round uh to win up to 550,000 euros um which will help them finalize their solution and then the plan after that for the winners to again to try and send it to the moon in the next few years that's incredible wow i'm i don't know if it's the way you're selling it but i'm kind of rooting for glimpse over here i'll be honest i'm definitely pulling for glimpse and especially um i'm a big fan of dogs so in any robotic dog dog type robot i'm in on it i can i can see the article really uh sold itself to you as well so glad to see it it's always a sight to see so i'm happy yeah it is and uh, honestly like you and i both participated in competitions engineering competitions as students in college i think it's really really awesome to see this making it outside of like hey here's a bunch of students we'll let them pick a challenge and then do whatever they can to prove their engineering prowess like we're using competitions in the real world to solve real world problems um to me it's really really exciting that you know the competitive aspect to try and choose the best competitor and give them an opportunity to send their technology to the moon that this is happening like with government money at the european space agency with real public universities with real commercial companies like anybotics um i mean to me the stakes are a lot higher when you've got real consequences associated with it not just like a participation medal but the fact that you know, the European Space Agency basically has the confidence in the people to basically say, we're going to put up the bat signal and a bunch of competitors are going to come. And we trust that one of these competitors is going to have the right solution for us to go send this thing to the moon, um, as opposed to sticking within their, like, I don't know, within a, within a network of trusted contractors or something like that. It's pretty cool that um, a bunch of researchers from a university are able to break in and become a part of this competition. I completely agree with you. And I might be biased because, you know, you and I both did robotics projects for our capsule design. Uh, the group that I was working on, we were in a competition for corrosion detection. And I said it then, I'm going to say it now. If you want to see some really cool novel ideas, make a competition for students and make sure they're passionate, make, make it something that they could be passionate about and then just give them the resources to go nuts. And it like... I, again, I'm biased because it was my team and I thought we were great. We were one of the best, but you see everyone's solution and you're like, oh my God, that's so cool. Like that's, that's such an interesting approach to this. Um, I, I'm always going to be a fan of student competitions or research competitions like this. I think it's a great idea to really bring that innovation out of people. Yeah. And obviously competitive spirit makes you yeah. amp it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, on that note, let's move on to article two and talk about um, you know, robotics challenges that we can address down here on earth. Uh, what do I do? What do I mean by that? Well, mostly we're going to be talking about warehouse robotics. Now I want to take a step back when it comes to warehouse robotics, Dan, what does your mind go to? Like, what's the first thing you think about? Honestly, uh, Amazon robots, pick, pick packing things, right. Carrying a package from one place to another, or collecting a bunch of stuff to put in a box and taking it to the person who packs it. Exactly. And when I was reading this article, the first thing that came to my mind was Amazon. And I'm sure a lot of people, when they think of warehouse robotics, they think of Amazon or, you know, Alibaba. Alibaba also leverages robotics. But basically, it's these very, very big companies that are shipping a lot of things that have been able to pour a ton of money into R&D to develop their own proprietary software 
and their own specific hardware that matches the environment that they need to work in. And right? not just that, right? I got a friend who used to work at Amazon, like helping deploy their fulfillment centers with these robots. He said, it's like, it's got to be a really sterile environment. Like they design every single millimeter of that building to be like super conducive to these robots being able to make their way through there. It's not just the robots that are the system. I'd say like half, if not two thirds of the system is actually the way that they've designed the, the rest of the building to be accommodating to the fact that they want to use a robot. Yes. Yes. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because these folks at Carnegie Mellon University were like, look, technology has advanced quite a bit. We should have some universal tools that allow us to scale up warehouse robotics so that we can take them out of these, you know, really high tech companies. And um, it's actually interesting. There's a group at Carnegie Mellon University called Manufacturing Futures Institute, where manufacturing robotics and AI engineers have gotten together to come up with solutions of uh, tools that can help manufacturing and shipping and things like that in the future, futures now. And uh, there's two professors kind of spearheading the efforts that I'm going to be talking about. We have Ding Zhao and we have Marshall Hebert. Um, Professor Zhao is from the mechanical engineering department, which makes sense. Shout out. Dan and I are mechanical engineers, so oh, yeah. you know, we got to show love. Uh, and then we have uh, Professor Hebert, which is from the computer science department. So you have hardware meeting software, always a great time. Now, um, as we've kind of mentioned earlier, robotics are deployed right now in these warehouses that are basically made for the robotics to operate in. And what we really want is robots that can train themselves to navigate in a new dynamic environment. And by dynamic, I mean ever-changing, obstacles coming up, et cetera, et cetera. And we want them to work safely with humans and other robots and other equipment around them. So there's actually three different researchers, researches that are tackling and addressing um, this problem. And since that's a lot to take on, I've tried to break them down into what they're addressing. And I'm just going to briefly go over each of them and see how they fit into the big Are picture. they like three different options or are they three different aspects that will pile into one solution? Three different aspects that pile into, the, into one solution. Okay. So imagine- So they don't have making... like three different researchers in the Manufacturing Futures Institute, Institute at Carnegie Mellon fighting with each other saying, option A <laughs> is the best, option B is the best. <laughs> No, 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 no. Hey, you know what? We always talk about the secret sauce. This is a classic secret sauce. You know, in your typical hot sauce, you have three ingredients. You have the pepper, the vinegar, and the salt. And that's exactly what we got here. We got these ingredients playing nice with each other to make you some of that delicious, delicious Tabasco. So let's get into it. Uh, first up, we got navigation. And uh, this thing is actually called the Multi-Agent Path Planning with Evolutionary Reinforcement or MAPPER. Another great acronym. This yeah, episode's strong fun. acronyms in this episode. For sure, for sure. And the idea here is that this is a reinforcement learning model that allow robots to plan their path in large dynamic environments, which is one of the things that I said we want. Um, researchers explain this as, you know how a human baby first is like trying to understand their surroundings? They walk around, they're like, oh, this is a wall. This is somewhere really steep that I can fall off and die. So I like, I shouldn't do that. So these robots are doing the same thing. They're just exploring their surroundings to be like, I can go here. I shouldn't go there. And they're learning from this process. Okay. So now, they're just, they're running around the warehouse, checking out where different obstacles are, see what goes well, see what doesn't. And then that uses reinforcement learning to basically build in some behaviors to the robots saying like, oh, don't go crash into that shelf. Oh, it's okay to go down the aisle. 
Exactly. And now back to what we were talking about with like Amazon and Alibaba, typically what you actually have is some sort of a centralized um, computing network that is controlling all these robots to make sure they don't crash into each other. And that, that's very computationally intensive. Um, it uses up a lot of power to do that. And what you actually have implemented in this model is localized computing. So every robot, you know, on board, it has its own sensors and whatever, and it's continuously processing that data to figure out if it should go somewhere or if it shouldn't go somewhere. So instead, instead of, of talking to the brain that's controlling everything, each little robot's got its own brain and it's navigating around and learning things on its own, but also detecting obstacles, which might be a fixed shelf and it might be another robot headed towards it. And it's detecting those obstacles and learning to stay away from those as well. Exactly. And they got this great decentralized model that every robot can learn on its own. And what's interesting about this, by the way, is that it makes it really much easier to scale up because instead of being like, oh man, this one central computing platform that we have can only, only handle up to a hundred devices at, at one time. With this, as long as the space that you have can fit the robots, you can keep adding to it without increasing the complexity of your system. Or if one's broken, you can easily swap it out or replace its parts. Et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so I mean, and back to the analogy you're saying, right? If you've got a server that can only handle 100 robots, the marginal cost to go to unit 101 is going to be insane, right? You've got to upgrade your whole server infrastructure. You got to do the transfer of all your resources from the one server to the other. Or if you're you're using edge computing, right? Decentralized computing on each of the robots, you can just just buy the extra robot and put it in, and it works. Or take it out, and it doesn't work. I mean, it it sounds like it's it makes sense, especially when you're trying to get to the higher scale, right? If you For know sure. you're only going to use two, three robots, maybe centralized computing is your solution. But to make something that you can start with one or two and make it all the way to hundreds of robots without having to change your infrastructure, this seems like the solution. And, you know, it, it makes for a more robust system as well, because within if you have one server that's controlling everything, that's one point of failure. And if it goes down, everything's down. Whereas if it's decentralized, if one robot goes down, it's just one robot. Everything yeah. else is working fine. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's awesome. Yeah. And then we're going to move on to number two, which is safety. And we all know safety is important. So this one is called the robust cross entropy model. And the idea here is how do we make sure our robots avoid colliding with other robots, other goods, or other equipment? And they, the, the researchers here point out that we've done, we've been able to do simulations with traditional reinforcement learning models, and they work in like video games and they work in simulations and it's all fun, whatever, but real world modeling has been difficult. So to do this, to make sure that their model is conscious of safety as like priority number one, they created safety constraints. So like more parameters for the model to take into account as it's making decisions when it comes to path planning. So they didn't actually test this in the real world. They still used a virtual um, testing environment called Safety Gym to benchmark where their model lies in comparison to the current state of the art. And what they found out is that they outperformed the current state of the art quite substantially. We're talking orders of magnitude because of those uh, new constraints that they were able to introduce, which is pretty good because, again, in the Amazon warehouses, you have robots working with human beings. And as much as you possible, you want to be able to increase safety and decrease the chances of them colliding with other things. Um, so that's always nice. Yeah, and that, that especially makes sense, right, when you're saying in, in decision making and path planning and stuff like that. Um, as the robots, as you start to deploy them, you want them to consider safety as like the top priority, not how fast can I get from point A to point B? Um, because if you've got a bunch, hundreds of robots in a 
warehouse all trying to get from point a to point b in the fastest way they're all going to crash with each other they're going to crash with people they're going to damage the goods that they're carrying it's i think while the robotics are definitely enacted as a part to try like try to make the process more efficient it's cool that they're able to basically program into the logic that you don't want to damage anything you don't want to damage yourself you don't want to damage any goods because that that's a slippery slope that goes downhill fast if they're not if they're not keeping that in mind you want them to prioritize. That's the best way I can put it, right? They got to know that safety is number one. It's good to get there as fast as possible, but don't hurt anyone in the process of doing that. Yeah, makes um, sense. And then the last one, I th this is the coolest one to me, is context-aware safe reinforcement re learning. And this is how I, I'm going to categorize it as awareness. So how can a robot react to dynamic disturbances, things that are unknown to it? And this can be moving robots, moving people that it was not accounting for, inaccurate sensor measurements. This is an interesting one. Broken parts in the robot that are messing up its movement or its measurements and obstructions like random trash. Let's say someone just finished eating a bag of Doritos and they threw it on the ground and you weren't expecting that. What do you do? How do you get around it? So the reinforcement learning model they made here, um, the robot is continuously taking into account its current uh, planning policy, so the path that it's planning on taking, and then incorporating the data from the past few seconds and minutes to keep checking, is this still the right plan? Is this still the right plan? Like, for example, if um, someone is now jogging towards me, should I be changing my path? And that's, that's a pretty straightforward one, but or like the one I'm trying to think of with the inaccurate sensor measurements, if your ultrasonic sensor told you to move up this much and you'll be this amount closer to this other robot, after some amount of time, you realize it's actually not the case. Maybe your sensor's off. What do you do now? How do you account for that? Yeah. I mean, so awareness is one of the biggest things. If you've got safety as your top priority, right? As the top priority in the protocol, I mean, it's it's a well-documented problem. The, the freezing robot problem, right? If you try to train your robot, train your algorithms to be as safe as possible, when start working. you go put it in the real world, it's going to detect something that it thinks is unsafe and it's just going to freeze. It's going to stop where it is because you've programmed it to not crash into anything and not do anything risky. If it doesn't have any awareness or doesn't have any ability to reevaluate the policies that it's using um, and take active measurements into account as well as past measurements, um, you're going to have a freezing robot problem. But I think Absolutely. with awareness, they're able to feel a little bit more confident to say, yeah, it's okay to sometimes like go within a few centimeters of this wall if you're trying to avoid a collision with something else or if it's going to keep you from getting caught in a traffic jam or something like that having awareness of unpredictable disturbances is that's probably the toughest part or like you said probably the best part of their solution here is all this stuff probably works great in simulations it works great in when you practice with a couple of robots but when you go put this out in the real world and someone crumpled up their trash from lunch and threw it on the floor how does the robot react that's what you really exactly. need to figure out exactly and one last thing I'm going to note on this, they mentioned that this approach can actually be task agnostic. So right now we're talking about warehouse robots, but it can be applied to different uh, robotics projects as well. Got it. So they, they're this three-part solution, right? They think can be an infrastructure for someone to, or a framework for someone to go pop up a different type of warehouse robotics or even a different type of cobotics or I don't know, maybe even something in software only automation who knows i mean you know we, we've talked about wheelchair robotics in the past where it's like you have an autonomous wheelchair that can navigate you around and for those projects to really take off and for industry partners to really adapt 
um, warehouse robotics that don't cost them an arm and a leg, we depend on resources like this, where researchers have done a lot of the heavy lifting and we can plug and play these tools to develop things that we need. So they've said it in the article, I'm going to say it, the future's exciting and these folks are greatly contributing to it. Yeah, I agree, man. All right. Um, I think this is a good note to end the episode on. You agree? I'm with you. All right. Everyone, as always, thank you for listening. And again, as always, we'll see you in the next episode. Peace. That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by WeWelver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit WeWelver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.